Let's head overseas now. There is word tonight of U.S. intelligence pointing towards an imminent move by Russia on Ukraine. It led to a meeting of NATO ambassadors late today to discuss the rising tensions with 100,000 Russian troops still on Ukraine's border. And Western nations, including Canada, are ordering their citizens out of Ukraine now. The diplomacy continues. So does the threat of sanctions if Russia were to invade. But my next guest argues the only effective deterrent is to hit the Kremlin where it hurts. Go after their money now. Bill Browder, CEO of Heritage Capital Management and the force behind the Global Magnitsky Act, allowing countries to sanction human rights offenders and freeze their assets. He's also known as Vladimir Putin's number one enemy, and he joins me now from London, England. Welcome to the show. Great to be here. Uh, We're seeing a whole flurry of diplomatic activity between Russia and NATO allies of late, threats of tougher economic sanctions if Putin, in fact, decides to push further into Ukraine. Um, As I was mentioning, Britain's envoy to Canada said last night, our two countries are cooperating on a new set of sanctions. But you've argued that the sanctions should actually come first. Uh, Why is that? Vladimir Putin actually invaded Ukraine as far back as 2014. We're talking about uh, taking Crimea, uh, uh, sending in mercenaries to uh, Donbass and Eastern Ukraine and various other things. And so, and, and the consequences for doing that were, in his view, relatively minor. He, he, was, uh, he was able to survive and thrive, uh, even though there were some, what they called sectoral sanctions, and even though some individual military officials and, and other government officials were sanctioned. And so, uh, to the extent that we're going to try to use sanctions to get him to stop this time, there's two things that have to happen. One is those sanctions have to hit him much more personally. In other words, go after his money and the money of oligarchs who hold his assets for him. And secondly, he's got to know that that's serious and it's going to happen. And the only way he's going to believe that that's going to happen is if we take a small portion of those people that we might otherwise sanction after they invaded and do it before. So he sees that, yes, the West is now serious about creating consequences. In the, in the words of Gary Kasparov that you often mentioned, banks, not tanks, this would be sort of a troop buildup, in other words, to threaten, uh, to at least show that we're serious about, uh, about these sanctions. You've long championed going after money as the one way to counter Russia. How is it that Vladimir Putin is so vulnerable? And how is it that we haven't exploited that vulnerability more uh, in the past? Well, every, every, most uh, people who develop policy think of others in the policy world as being like them. So if you're, if you're a, um, a U.S. government official, you've chosen to go into government service to serve your country, or the same thing with Canada. But there's not a single official in Russia that went to serve their country. They go into government service to steal money. And so the psychology is totally different. These people only care about their money. They want to maximize profits. They want to take steal as much money as they can. And Vladimir Putin is the biggest thief of all these people. And that's why he's um, tried to stay in power forever is to continue to steal money and to not t- not pay any price or face any consequences for stealing money. And so, and 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 for what it's worth, everybody who knows any, anything about really what what motivates Vladimir Putin all has come to the same conclusion. You mentioned Gary Kasparov, mm-hmm. Alexei Navalny, Boris Nemtsov. These are all names of 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 the most credible. Uh, opposition politicians in Russia, everybody understands that the only thing that motivates these guys is money. And so you can't apply the same tools. You, you have to sort of step out of your own psychology and say, how would a person who comes from a criminal background behave 
um, in a situation where they're making geopolitical decisions. And that's where you come back to money. Where is this money? Because I think oftentimes people forget just how much money from Russia is floating around. And we always read about London, of course, and the south of France. But Canadians aren't invulnerable to this either. Well, um, there's a lot of money all everywhere. There's so much money that's come out of Russia over the last 20 years. The estimates by experts is a trillion dollars. And, um, and the money is everywhere. And I can tell you that money is in Canada. If you look at the all these uh, uh, high rises in, in Toronto, some of that is Russian money. Hotels in Toronto, some of that's Russian money. Uh, it's certainly all over London. I mean, you can't even you, you, you can't can't even walk down the street without hearing Russian being spoken in the south of France and Switzerland, all all over the place. And so, the Russian money is everywhere. But London is a particular place for Russian money because it's sort of the it became after the fall of the Soviet Union the offshore center for dirty Russian money. And you've always said that that, in fact, is the Achilles heel of, of, of the Russian power structure is the fact that all their money is parked elsewhere um, and we have no money there. Exactly. So, so you, you have a situation where, you know, they're doing terrible, terrible things in Russia to their own people, to, to their neighbors, et cetera. And, um, and we don't want to go to we don't want to have a physical war. We don't want to shed blood. We don't want to lose soldiers. Uh, <laughs> but. At the same time as they're doing these terrible things, the thing that they value the most, which is their money, is being held in the West. And so it's a totally, it's their Achilles heel, it's their exposed flank, and it's something where if we freeze their money, they can't do it back to us because we're not keeping our money in Spare Bank and Vinesh Torg Bank. You referred to that as sort of our ability to fight asymmetric warfare with our own version of asymmetric warfare. But it always struck me that one of the reasons they were able to exploit it is that in some senses they found our Achilles heel, and that's greed. Um, is oh, that still true, true, true today, or is that true? It, it, it's absolutely true, but it created the opportunity as well. So yes, in London, the, this, this city of London is levitating off of a sea of dirty Russian money. And, and because of all this money floating around, it's become the most permissive place where nobody was asking tough questions, nobody was being prosecuted, et cetera. And, and that was a problem. And that has, has been something really sort of upsetting for people like me for a long time. But now all the money is here. <laughs> and and that, that, that creates the leverage. Britain, which is you know, a relatively small country by population standards, et cetera, can punch way above its weight because there's so much dirty Russian money here that can be seized. How do the sanctions work? How would they work? In well, the most pretty, basic terms, sorry. It's, it's, it's pretty straightforward. So we, make a, we, we um, uh, make a list of the 50 oligarchs who hold Putin's money. And there's no mystery of who these people are. Alexei Navalny, the opposition politician who Putin tried to poison and then put in jail, has made a list of 35 of them. Um, many other very credible people on Russian uh, corruption have made other lists. We make a list of the of the uh, top fifty people, um, and, and in my prescription, you sanction five of them right away. And what that means is is that uh, you you name them on a on the Magnitsky list or some similar <coughs> piece of legislation to freeze their assets. <clears throat> and the moment they're on that list, then every bank in every country where they're sanctioned immediately freezes their assets and doesn't allow them to do any more business. So you you sanction the first five. And hopefully that's something which will immediately get Putin's attention because it's much different than every other thing that happens. And then you give Putin two weeks to move his troops back from the border, 
50, 100 miles, whatever the number is. And if he doesn't, you sanction the next five. And then you tell Putin that if he does go across the border, then the next 40 will be sanctioned. And if we did that, I'm almost 100% sure Putin wouldn't cross the border. I'm back with Bill Browder, founder and champion of the Global Magnitsky Act, which allows countries to sanction those it sees as human rights offenders and freeze their assets. Canada passed uh, the Justice for Victims of Foreign Corrupt Foreign Officials Act, the Magnitsky Law, in 2017. It's in place here and in 33 other countries around the world. Bill Browder is often referred to as Russian Vladimir, Russian President Vladimir Putin's number one enemy. One of the things that came up, I was interviewing our defense minister a few weeks ago, is this idea of deterrence versus provocation. And, and I think if you look at Vladimir Putin's history, certainly his, his notion of humiliation, going after his assets, I, do, you, do you think sometimes officials are reluctant to do it because they see it as something that can really provoke an unpredictable response from him? Or do you think he would back away? Well, Vladimir Putin is, uh, is a thug. He's a bully. And thugs and bullies only respect power. They don't respect weakness. And they don't respect appeasement. And it's just not a psychology that, you know, we've all gotten soft in the, in the post-Cold War, war, post-Cold war era where, where um, we haven't had to deal with these types of tyrants. But the only way to deal with a person like Vladimir Putin is to stand up to him. And, and if we did, and when we do, um, he respects it. And so I, I think it's just, it's really sort of weak and, and almost pathetic to, to say we don't want to provoke him. You have to stand up to him. And so I strongly disagree with, with that um, attitude. And I think that Putin sees that as just sort of an, an invitation to do whatever he wants. And he exploits it, I gather. I mean, he has exploited it traditionally. So just let's just look at the history. So Putin uh, started his whole career by carpet bombing Chechnya to the point of extinction. He then invaded in 2008 Georgia. He then in 2014 took Crimea and then went into eastern Ukraine. After that, he was dropping uh, uh, um, bombs on on civilian hospitals in Syria. He's been sending his uh, assassins to the UK to poison his enemies in Salisbury and in London. He's cheated in the Olympics, shot down passenger planes, and there's and, and nothing really has happened. He's you know a few sanction, a few minor sanctions here and minor sanctions there, but he's felt totally empowered to carry on doing this bad stuff because nobody really stands up to him. You stood up to him or you've stood up to him. Um, perhaps the listeners aren't familiar with the Minitsky story. Just a bit about what drove you to try to go after Vladimir Putin and, and oligarchs for with this Achilles heel of their money. So the story is, is basically I was, in, I was doing a, running an investment fund in Moscow. Uh, I started to complain about corruption in the companies I invested in, uh, as you can imagine, the people working with Putin weren't so happy about that. I was expelled from the country, declared a threat to national security. My offices were raided. My lawyer, Sergei Magnitsky, started to investigate. He discovered a massive $230 million fraud that was committed uh, uh, using the documents seized from my office. He exposed it. He testified against the officials involved. And he was subsequently arrested, tortured for 358 days, and killed uh, on November 16, 2009, at the age of 37. And uh, I've made it my life's work uh, to go after the people who killed him. And that's culminated in a piece of legislation called the Magnitsky Act, which freezes the assets and bans the visas of the people who killed Sergei and the people who commit other gross human rights abuses in Russia 
and around the world. And there are now 34 countries with Magnitsky acts. And it's totally infuriates Putin and the Russian elite, because this is the one place where they don't have any control over the situation. They're completely vulnerable to decisions of the West. And that has made me his number one enemy. He's threatened me with death, kidnapping. They've issued eight Interpol arrest warrants against me. They've come to the British government on multiple occasions to try to have me extradited. They've sued me. They've pursued me. They've made movies about me. Uh, I'm really sort of just the, the, the person they hate the most because if I can do this, if I can stand up to them, um, it, it sends a message that other people can stand up to them. And, and if other people stood up to them, then they wouldn't do the stuff they do. Canada passed essentially the Magnitsky law in 2017. Uh, we've seen several 33 other countries pass similar laws. Uh, are they being used effectively right now? Because we're seeing sort of a, a new, or at least we see an encroachment now of more totalitarian or more authoritarian regimes. It would seem that their money would also be an effective way of trying of, for de- democratic nations to try to fight back. Um, are you seeing it used effectively? Um, it, it's a it's a, a very sporadic um, uh, story. In some some places, it's, used, it's being used excellently. The United States has really been the leader on this, with I think more than five hundred uh, people and entities sanctioned. Canada um, passed the Magnitsky Act in 2017 unanimously. This was under uh, Foreign Minister Christia Freeland at the time. And um, and then she immediately sanctioned the people who killed Magnitsky, the people who killed Jamal Khashoggi, the um, Saudi journalist, a bunch of um, uh, people involved in the Maduro regime in Venezuela, and, um, uh, and the... Um, uh, generals in Myanmar who were involved in the Rohingya genocide. It was like a really sort of top, you know, a bad guy list. And then they did one more, she did one more set of sanctions and then she was promoted to uh, finance minister and every single su- su- successive foreign minister after her has not used the Magnitsky Act up until now. And so I've been in, in conversations with uh, members of the Canadian parliament from every different political party about um, conducting a major parliamentary review of, of how we can possibly, how we can use this tool properly, um, uh, you know, having hearings and calling in witnesses and, and calling in people in the government to find out why it hasn't been used so that um, going forward, Canada sort of takes its rightful place as a, as a human rights leader and, and uses this, this uh, piece of legislation. Watching other countries who've used it effectively, particularly the U.S., where has Canada, do you think, after Christia Freeland left that position, do you think it's just uh, neglect to some extent or, or not or not knowing exactly how to use it you think there's been a conscious decision to stop using it well, it's very conscious i mean if if other countries are using it and canada isn't um, somebody has made the decision not to go along with allies um, against really evil people around the world and that doesn't make any logical sense and so somebody is making that decision thinking you know they know better but um, it's a bad decision and, and hopefully with a new foreign minister that will change certainly we're reading more about threats of sanctions using the Minitsky Act against in this current Ukraine situation. Uh, is this time really? Are a lot of people watching Canada to see? I know we're not the for, at the forefront of Vladimir Putin's mind, but will people be watching Canada to see our reaction to this particular crisis to figure out where we stand as far as containing Vladimir Putin is? Well, the only person that matters is Vladimir Putin watching. And so if, if the United States and Canada and the United States and Britain have said very specifically that they're going to sanction oligarchs, which they have said, Putin's oligarchs, and Canada hasn't said that, <clears throat> he's noticing that. He's noticing exactly who's saying what. And he's looking for divisions among allies. And so 
uh, I've been saying to whatever Canadian politician is ready to listen, that you need to, you know, put your chin up to the bar and do what what, what your allies are doing in in relation to the the most effective, you know, banks, not tanks uh, way of stopping a war. Bill Browder, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Bill Browder, CEO of Hermitage Capital Management, the force behind the Global Magnitsky Act, as he described.